the last 20 months, um, most have been in isolation, um, leaving people to process the many injustices of this world and their communities in solitude. And many people have used social media as the platform to express their frustrations and their anger. You wrote, beautiful things can happen when we emerge from our bubbles of isolation and step into the messiness of life. Of course, I don't think you're referring to the isolation of, of the pandemic, but more of uh, the feelings we um, uh, are dealing with and you know, on our, um, as an individual. So how do you encourage people to transition from having these thoughts and wanting to do things um, into choosing to, to join others and encountering those affected by systemic injustice. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlor, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary, a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. This podcast episode is sponsored by the Forum for Theological Exploration. Founded in 1954, FTE is a leadership incubator that inspires young people to make differences in the world through Christian communities. This month, FTE is launching Call to Pastoral Ministry, a new four-week online course designed for young adults discerning their next most faithful step towards ministry. Going to seminary can incur a $50,000 or more price tag. FTE wants to help you to be confident about your decision to attend seminary or to pursue other paths towards ministry before making a large investment. Call to Pastoral Ministry will expand your imagination, share inspirational stories, provide discernment practices, and affirm your call in diverse communities of peers and mentors. 
Enroll in FTE's course and be empowered as you discern a call by God to pastor, preach, and serve. The course launches on April 1st with enrollment closing March 31st. Visit fteleaders.org backslash called to learn more and to enroll for free today. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Terrence Lester. He's the founder of Love Beyond Walls. He's authored several books, including I See You. He's an activist for racial equality and advocate for those experiencing homelessness. Terrence, thank you for joining the conversation. Andy, uh, such a pleasure to be here. So I'm sitting here looking through all the things you've accomplished. You've authored several books. You founded a nonprofit organization focused on poverty awareness and community mobilization. You led a 386-mile march against poverty from Atlanta to Memphis. You've spoken on multiple social justice platforms, including Dr. King's daughter, Bernice. And now you're working on a PhD. So where do you find the time for all this? What's the secret? Well, uh, I guess one of the things that I hold dear to my heart is um, something Steve Jobs said in a commencement speech. He says, uh, one of the things that keeps me going is knowing that I won't be here forever. Um, And I think that at the core of who I am, you know, mixed with my faith, uh, keeps me going, uh, knowing that you know, at some point there's there's an expiration date. And while the Lord has me here, I want to make the best use of my time in service, uh, my time in um, uh, modeling what it means to be a servant leader to my children and creating healthy rhythms with my family, but also what it means to show up in community as a black man in this country and uh, live a life uh, for others. And, and so that's what keeps me going, man. I think uh, my energy derives from just being really passionate about uh, the things that I'm advocating for. So uh, tell us about Love Beyond Walls and, and the call to, to found this organization. Yeah, I mean, so... I, it's twofold. Uh, one, uh, Love Young Walls was kind of a, a story in the making within the context of my own life. Um, at 16 and a half years old, I experienced homelessness myself, um, living from park to park, uh, having to find friends, homes that would allow me to sleep either on their couches or on the floor. And doing all of this while trying to understand why my family was dealing with a lot of issues and having to go to high school uh, with this type of pressure. And so um, early on, I had a mentor uh, come into my life. His name was Mr. Moore. Uh, Mr. Moore was a guy that uh, saw the best in me, even when I didn't see the best in myself. He was a, a minister. He was a pastor. Uh, But most importantly, he was just a a really neat guy that loved his family and modeled what it meant to live in community with others. And so he became someone I could reach out to and ask, should I put myself through college? Should I, you know, uh, should I marry her? Right. Uh, Should I try to use parts of my story 
that God is redeeming in a, in a way that would relate to other people. And he was the one uh, that would champion me uh, to do so. And uh, I was able to overcome a lot of those struggles. Uh, you know, I dropped out of high school. I went back to high school. Uh, I went on to college and completed multiple degrees and now uh, also working on my PhD. Um, and so a lot of that passion derives from what God did in my own life and how God used uh, community uh, really to build me up and, and to show me uh, that life um, could be uh, greater than what I had experienced. Uh, but on the other side of it, you know, it's, it's just like one of those passion things where, you know, when you are in relationship with um, Jesus, um, that you adopt these, these ways of seeing the world, right? Um, you start to understand that worth is not necessarily defined by extrinsic things, that worth, real worth is uh, the worth that we all carry and possess on the inside of inside of ourselves. And so, uh, you know, I, I really got really frustrated at seeing people walk by people experiencing homelessness, uh, turning down their noses at them. Uh, I remember one time I was going to this huge Christian event with some of my friends who were in the faith and we were walking past people experiencing homelessness and they would make these really smart remarks and uh, make jokes at people without an address and they didn't even know my own story but yet we were going into a facility uh, to worship uh, Jesus who said himself in the scriptures you know foxes have holes birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head um, they were actually talking down or talking about people whom Jesus himself would identify with. And I, I, you know, that passion for me started to bubble up. And, you know, I kind of went, how do we reframe the narrative around what it means to be uh, a person without a house? Because homelessness itself is not monolithic. You know, everybody arrives in this plight uh, from different um, vantage points or, or, or um, from different uh, stories, right? And, you know, that passion to extend love, the love of God beyond all of the walls that exist in society of, or culture, kind of, kind of, it arose from there. And, and so we started doing a lot of things. And, you know, I'll, I'll if you want, I'll tell you the story of how the organization actually started. And uh, we can go from there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, feel free. Yeah, so I remember, um, you know, I was a church planner for a number of years, uh, pastored, and uh, worked on staff at several churches. And I just really became frustrated at the Sunday to Sunday hop. Uh, being in facilities where they weren't used in a multi-purpose way, 
you know, and there were days I would walk to the edge of the uh, parking lot and, you know, literally stare at the cars passing by uh, when it wasn't Sunday and just had this realization that all of the action was out there. It was, it was, you know, in, in community. And um, I'll never forget having a uh, conversation with uh, one of my mentors at the time, and I was becoming really frustrated with um, how the institution of church normally functions. And he, he goes, you know, how's God shown up in the ways in which you do ministry? And I just kind of lit up and I was like, you know, I love building relationships with, you know, our neighbors without an address. I love being in community. I love um, mobilizing people. Every time we do like uh, creative projects, we tend to attract, you know, a lot of people from all walks of life. You know, I love building relationships with uh, people who may not believe like I believe or who may never walk into a church um, and sit in a pew or sit in some comfy chair or drink a coffee in service, right? And, you know, he kind of responded and he says, you know, what if God is, is just leading you to do that? What would you call it? And I'll never forget um, on one of our church planning t-shirts, uh, we had the name Love Beyond Walls. Um, and it was something that I come up with because you know I had this passion to really extend uh, the love of God beyond the four walls of the church uh, to those without an address right and you know I just really started to think about it and one day I had gone downtown and I was um, meeting with one of my friends named Kurt uh, he lived behind this ab abandoned building and I had been having breakfast with him uh, on a weekly basis for about three months. I had met him. And so Kurt thought I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going to show up. And each week it would just kind of build on, build on, build on trust, right? Because he thought I was just, you know, another person just handing a meal and, and just wanting it to be transactional. Uh, but Kurt didn't know that I was like really deeply you know, invested in, in relational building and relational equity and what it means to really be in community. Um, and one day after three months of just having breakfast with him, I asked him a question. I said, hey, Kurt, um, you know, why don't you allow me to use my network and my resources um, to try to help you get from behind this building? And he responds and he says, um, there's a shelter uh, nearby it's about four or five hundred men in it they sleep in chairs and it's only one restroom and the smell is so thick um, you could probably taste it he says as a matter of fact if I was to go there everything I own and possess in this bag and he tugged on this bag he says I would probably have to stay up all night to protect it because everything uh, that identifies who I am as a person my identification card my birth certificate, social security card, it could get lost. I've lost it before. Um, he says, I bet you won't do it. That's what he says to me. And I say, what do you mean? He says, why don't you go and sleep in the shelter and then 
see if you're able to to stay under those circumstances because sometimes the shelter workers will treat you mean as well and i bet you will be outside with me on the back side of this building and i was like thinking about this and then he goes on uh to tell me his story he says you want to know why i'm out here and i go yeah he says um uh, a few years back i was driving in this city had a, a great paying job and i was in a car accident and my wife and my child uh, passed away i was the only one to survive he says i couldn't live with myself i started drinking and i could no longer function on my job and i lost everything and i ended up um sleeping on the streets and it just rocked me and he asked me before i left he says what are you gonna do and so on the long drive home um i just sat with me i had just been reading um jesus's words when he says for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a, as a ransom um for many and it was um just this this picture, this image of uh, Jesus giving up uh, and sacrificing and walking in the shoes of those that he had served. I arrived home and I'm eating dinner with my wife and my two young kids at the time. My wife goes, um, she says, what's wrong? And I say, yeah. I met, uh, with Kurt today and he you know he told me his story I was just thinking about how cold it was outside the fact that he couldn't walk over to a thermostat or like go to a refrigerator or grab an extra comfy blanket if you wanted to because it's getting nippy in the house and I say um I think I'm supposed to do something uh that's it's gonna seem a little radical she says what say um i think the lord is wanting me to like live on the streets as a person experiencing homelessness she goes what i say yeah uh, um i read this verse and uh, i want to walk in the shoes of those that we're um that we're willing to serve and long story short uh, my wife agrees and we uh, talk about the length of time and I remember her dropping me off in December uh, it was really cold at the time underneath the bridge um, in this space called Tent City her and my kids and uh, letting me out the car and so I spent all of Christmas um, living on the streets I did it multiple times I lived on the streets for over a month, uh, eat, eating out of trash cans, standing on the corners, begging for change uh, with some of my friends who was just trying to get change for medication, uh, having to walk tons and tons of miles to charge a cell phone and uh, being put out of shelters because it was, we were five minutes late, uh, having uh, young business professionals walk across the street, um, being put out of restaurants for asking for water, you know, standing outside of restaurants and having families like go in and buy, you know, a, a dollar sandwich off the menu so we could sit down 
and also having families look at me and my friends sitting at a table and literally get up out of their seats and walk across the restaurant to sit somewhere else um, and look at us in disgust. Um, and going through all of those emotions and experiences kind of shaped not only the start of Love Beyond Walls, but um, kind of our messaging about affirming the inherent worth and dignity of, of those without an address. And so that was the start of Love Beyond Walls, you know, and years later, uh, we have a facility. Uh, many of my friends that I met on the streets, we were able to get them off of the streets, get them access to identification cards, reunite some with their family members and all of those things. And so, yeah, that's the, that was the start. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You know, I'm, I'm listening to you share the story, you know, of, of, of what created this organization. And, and then I also heard you in talking about, you know, your experience with church and how there's often this, this disconnect um, between what we see in the teachings and ministry of Jesus and what we see um, in the actions of local churches. Why do you think there is such a disconnect? You know, why, why is there such a disconnect within many churches where, you know, they might be willing to um, contribute to an organization that's doing this kind of work, but overwhelmingly the majority of churches that don't participate themselves in this type of work, let alone individuals within the church. So why, you know, in, in your conversations and you're working with other people, why, why do you think there is such a tremendous disconnect there? Yes, yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think it's a number of things. I think um, 
the way that we have been fashioned to think about uh, poor folks in this country uh, has been both social and political. And in many ways, uh, having rhetoric uh, from pulpits to uphold the social constructions that persist about what it means to be impoverished, uh, you know, where if you are poor, then you're somehow lazy or you have moral issues or you have character flaws. And we kind of perpetuate these narratives and intertwine them uh, even with our own uh, theological frameworks. And so it reminds me of the story when I think um, uh, Jesus and the disciples come across this man and uh, I think he was blind and the disciples asked this question, who sinned, right? Uh, was it his parents? And Jesus responds and he's like, yo, like nobody sinned, right? Um, this was for the glory of God. And I think uh, even just using that type of narrative, I think we do have these narratives um, that even Jesus himself faced where can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Can anything good come out of the poorest part of my city? Can anything good come out of, you know, uh, a, a community that is under-resourced and overlooked? Um, these are the same narratives that Jesus himself was faced with. I mean, uh, when you think about Howard Thurman's uh, framework in Jesus and the Disinherited, he uses Jesus uh, as, um, you know, a, a person that relates to those who are poor and disenfranchised in uh, the United States of America, um, mostly black and brown folks. Uh, Jesus was born poor, right? He was under oppression, Roman oppression, and he was a minority, right? Um, sounds a lot like what folks are struggling with uh, today, but somehow we've allowed these false narratives that persist about what it means to be poor in this country um, to dictate how we behave and treat those whom God also loves, right? Um, you know, I think about many Christians who've come to our organization time and time again. I told this story here recently. We had a lady who came with her church and she's from, uh, you know, upper middle class church. Uh, church is really affluent. She come down to do charitable acts of service. And she had made sandwiches, uh, ham sandwiches. And uh, there's a person in our community We'll just call his name Gerald. And she walks up to Gerald to ham, hand him a ham sandwich. And um, he declines. And she goes off the rails, right? She starts yelling. She starts making a fuss. You should be grateful for, you know, you should take anything you can get. And just literally uh, stumping on this man's uh, dignity, right? And I walk over. I see it unfolding. And I ask, what's going on? And he says, you know, I can't eat this because of my dietary restrictions. I have a, you know, I have an illness and I have to watch what I eat. And I explained this uh, to the person and she just, you know, so uh, sorry and uh, repentant. And it was just like this miseducation of 
how we are supposed to treat people who may not have the same things that we have. Just because a person doesn't have an address does not mean that they're not your neighbor. And Jesus says, love your neighbor. But if you're loving your neighbor, you also have to love the neighborhood that shaped your neighbor. And you have to be concerned with the issues that that neighborhood is faced with, right? And I think it goes back to education, how our uh, social lenses have been framed, but also how we've upheld these, these false perceptions of what it means to be poor uh, in this world uh, against those who are actually poor, right? Jesus himself went through similar circumstances and, you know, it would just, it's just so ironic to me that many times, you know, Jesus who would say, I, I have nowhere to lay my head um, is, is worshiped on Sundays, but someone who says, I don't have anywhere to lay my head Monday through Saturday, maybe walk past. And that grieves the heart of God, I believe. And it is not a reflection of, you know, our faith. One of the challenging aspects of all that we're talking about is you've written this uh, extraordinary book, um, When We Stand, and this is an invitation um, for the power of mobilizing and acting together to seek justice. And you wrote, uh, imagine people from different walks of life, denominations and backgrounds, all working together with a we mentality instead of a me mentality as they confront the injustices in their communities. What stirred this message within you to call people to unify, to combat such powerful issues? Yeah, I mean, over the years of doing work with Love and Walls, I've just seen the power of togetherness um, and how togetherness and community actually transforms uh, people's lives. I've seen families living out of cars um, go to having sustainable housing and gainful employment because people came together. I've seen, um, you know, persons with degrees who became um, homeless actually go back and find gainful employment in corporate America because people came together I've seen children who did not have access to clean clothing or uh, families not having the ability to wash their clothes, get access because people came together. I've seen, um, you know, people who did not have, you know, employable skills get trained by volunteers uh, who lent their expertise and their training because people came together. Uh, our entire ministry has been centered around mobilizing people to come together. There's power when people come together uh, and start to treat the ills that plague society as ills instead of seeing each other as ills, right? Um, and I think there's something to be said that when we humble ourselves in a way um, to lift up community that God is not only glorified, but God can move through people who are willing to uh, serve and sacrifice their time uh, to make the world a better place. And so, 
I've just seen miraculous things happen over the course of we've been in existence uh, eight years now when people come together. Uh, we have we have a, 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 a empathy and a compassion deficit in our world right now. Um, I have a friend named Belinda. She wrote this book called Brave Souls. And one of the lines that I love so dearly in the book, and I hold it um, close to me as I, I do the work that we do, it says that empathy is the virtue that is muscular enough to handle the complexities of our day. Another way of saying that is that when we lead with compassion, uh, when we choose to enter into spaces with people who may not look like us, talk like us, uh, think like us, even come from the same social locations that we emerge from, that we enter into a space uh, to set ourselves up to join um, what God is doing in the earth um, through people. Um, and we have to have compassion and empathy and all of those aspects of understanding that another person's reality may not be my own, um, to equip us to stay in the fight alongside people, not to stay in the fight with people, not to fight people, but to stay in the fight alongside people. And what we desperately need uh, today, I believe, Andy, are people who are willing to not, not fight people, uh, but fight alongside people. You know, the last 20 months, um, most have been in isolation, um, leaving people to process the many injustices of this world and their communities in solitude. And many people have used social media as the platform to express their frustrations and their anger. You wrote, beautiful things can happen when we emerge from our bubbles of isolation and step into the messiness of life. Of course, I don't think you're referring to the isolation of, of the pandemic, but more of uh, the feelings we um, uh, are dealing with and, you know, in our, um, as an individual. So how do you encourage people to transition from having these thoughts and wanting to do things um, into choosing to, to join others and encountering those affected by systemic injustice? That's a great question. You know, one of the things I uh, oftentimes say is that many times it's not a, a issue of willingness. Um, we have a lot of people who are willing. We just don't have a lot of available people, right? Uh, there's a difference between willingness and availability. And what I mean by that is that um, most people who have been in isolation also for the first time grappled with um, this notion of what am I doing with my life? You know, why have I been so busy? You know, um, you know, slowing down in the context of the pandemic caused a lot of people to realize that they had been missing out on the most essential things in life, relationships with their family members, um, relationships with loved ones, you know, doing things that actually uh, cares for their soul, right? Soul care, self-care, um, doing things that may seem untraditional, but um, 
would develop the type of uh, healthy rhythms needed uh, to continue to, to, to move forward in the context of what we were all collectively experiencing. And I think, um, you know, it's really important to take that into context as we talk about this, this question, you know, you know, I, I often ask people to consider, um, you know, to think about what's on their plate, you know, what do you need to actually remove from your plate where you can actually start to incorporate service as a lifestyle, um, you know, and then asking yourself questions like what, what makes you mad, right? If we use mad and creating an acronym, um, it stands for make a difference. What, what do you, what, what do you wake up with on your heart that really irks your nerves or really causes you to get really fired up? Sometimes asking ourselves those types of questions are indicators um, or is an indicator that let us know, you know, an area that we may need to actually serve in, you know. Um, another question you could ask is, you know, uh, what can I give my time to? And not just in an event orientation, uh, but an orientation that sets my life up to give myself to this thing in a rhythmic way? Am I serving once a week? Am I giving an hour of my time uh, once a week, uh, once every other week? You know, how many hours per month uh, do I want to actually uh, give my time and service to this actual issue? See, for me, um, Andy, I'm really trying to communicate to people that uh, emerging from, you know, your isolated bubble is all about creating time and the type of margin necessary to be in community with other people. Um, and I think this is an art that we have gotten away from because we've allowed busy schedules and all of the things that weigh us down to keep us from being available uh, for God's best use. One of the most powerful messages from the book is to invite people to true that truly want to uh, see change in this world to um, draw themselves closer uh, in proximity to the real life issues that others face. And you point to the example of Jesus from the scriptures and his proximity to the suffering and, and pain of others. I wonder if you take us a little deeper into this concept. Yeah, I, I mean, proximity and presence is everything. I mean, obviously you have to do it in a safe way um, given the current climate that we're in, but nothing happens uh, apart from you know, proximity and presence, you know, I think right now in the time that we are living in um, proximity and presence uh, in community with others is going to not only provide strength and uh, carry us forward, but also provide that type of transformation that we wish to see. Uh, we have, we can't have a, a short distance mindset as it as it relates to uh, social and systemic change, we've have to have a kind of elongating mindset, knowing that as we are in community with other people, 
that is going to uh, create the type of change that we wish to see. Uh, you brought up Jesus. When I look at Jesus in the scriptures, you know, I, the, my favorite lines, you know, in the text is when it says, and Jesus saw, and Jesus saw, and Jesus saw, you know, uh, it lets us know that he was in close proximity enough to see. Uh, but then uh, in many of those passages, Jesus actually comes uh, closer to individuals, which embodies presence. I mean, uh, the gospel itself is, you know, a uh, an example of what it means to come and be close uh, to a people, right, uh, who are suffering. I mean, isn't that the uh, the message in the uh, the Good Samaritan parable and many of the other things that Jesus taught? And I, you know, I just like to encourage Christians to think deeper about what it means to live like Jesus, um, not just consuming uh, theological information to make you just headstrong, but how does that show up in praxis? Um, how does that show up in a very tangible way uh, in the communities that are suffering and the people that are suffering uh, from systemic injustice? What does it mean uh, to use and leverage your privilege in a way uh, that could uh, be useful uh, for God to do transformative things with. You know, now more than ever, um, people are becoming more aware of just how much um, racism still exists in our communities. And people think they know, but really it's just the, the tip of the iceberg of what really exists. And yet, in many people's sense of, of wokeness, for lack of better terms, there's this underlying arrogance of being informed and better than those who, who don't know. Uh, often there's this a sense of arrival. Um, but in the book, you call people to continue to unlearn and relearn um, around these things. Why is that so important? It's important because you know, I mean, unlearning is necessary because it gives you an opportunity to learn in a correct way. Um, I mean, there are many examples of things that we probably can point to in our lives where we've learned things and thought it to be true uh, for so long and probably didn't even know that it wasn't uh, true. And we had to unlearn that way of doing things and learn the correct way. I think uh, operating in a framework where you have learned something um, that is not true, um, you know, sets you up to operate in a space of ignorance. It sets you up to do harm to other people. Uh, it sets you up to you know, be uh, to, to say things uh, from a misinformed perspective. It causes you to see things in a cloudy way, right? You're not seeing things clearly. Um, and it allows you to spread uh, toxicity, right? And so it's almost like when you've learned in the wrong way for a long time, uh, it's, 
we can treat it like an illness, right? Uh, something that can be spread, right? And, you know, for so long, we've seen uh, this type of thing spread in communities uh, with, you know, um, uh, racism and, um, you know, uh, 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 mistreat of mistreatment of uh, people who are poor or impoverished, uh, holding perspectives of, of people in a way that is damaging, right? I, I remember uh, leading a tour in our museum. We launched this museum called the Dignity Museum uh, that represents homelessness. It's the first museum in the United States of America that represents this subject. And we had this school bring uh, hundreds of students through. I'll never forget this one senior standing in the museum after digesting all of the content and saying in front of her peers as well as our educators, and they come from a wealthy private school, that my parents taught me to fear black and brown poor people. They taught me that. And everybody was just shocked. And uh, uh, the student says, well, I don't believe what they've said anymore because I'm here and I'm learning a different way. And it was just like this aha moment that sometimes even misinformation and uh, some, some of the things and ways we have been fashioned or the things that we've consumed can misinform us in a way that we don't even see uh, the people that God cares for as also being a part of the beloved community. And when we relearn, we relearn how to be, uh, you know, in community with other people. We relearn how to have empathy and compassion towards our neighbors who may not be like us. We relearn how to, uh, it, you know, express the love of God, not just in a monolithic bubble, uh, but with people who extend beyond our own communities. We relearn how to uh, live as the family of God. We relearn how to um, share this love of Jesus um, in, in a deeper and more meaningful way in proximity and presence uh, in communities that may be suffering from in, injustice. We relearn, you know, um, how to see clearly, right? And to see holistically and, and to embody uh, the, the whole gospel as a part, as opposed to only em embodying certain parts of it. And so I think that's so essential. And, and relearning also just helps you build healthy relationships um, and be in community with people seeing issues as issues, but not people as issues. And one of the things that, you know, I'll say this as a close, one of the things we always say uh, to people who come to our organization is that, you know, we got to start seeing people as going through problems and stop seeing people as problems. I'd like to see if we could take this, uh, you know, a little deeper, um, because I think often um, the general sense of white guilt around racism can often lead to a lot more un unhealthiness, uh, for lack of better terms. And for, for many white people who have awoken to the realities of racism in our world, there's a sense of, let me go in and let me fix fix this problem. And so there's this 
quote, white savior or quote, white knight mentality that can often be just as racist and demeaning and undignifying as the thing they're trying to combat. So how do people, how do people recognize this mentality and, and what's a healthier alternative? Yeah, I, I think, um, well, firstly, you know, uh, dealing with the guilt is, you know, something that a person who may be white has to do, you know, their own inner work on not necessarily blaming yourself, uh, but realizing uh, the privilege and the access that you have to be able to steward that in a way to to make uh, some some change. And when I when I talk about change, I'm not talking about being a savior. Uh, sometimes that may flesh out in being, um, you know, in empowering in uh, black and brown voices and uh, creating space where inclusivity is something that is really embodied in the context by um, raising up uh, black and brown leaders where they are not micromanaged and made to be robots, uh, but really trusting voices. Um, sometimes that may be fleshing out in uh, becoming a student, right? Decolonizing your bookshelf. Uh, I remember telling a story on another podcast when I was talking about, you know, my whole seminarian experience. I learned from white theologians about white theologians. I mean, I go on and on and on. Uh, my K through 12 educational journey uh, didn't really embody uh, Black history. I had to become an independent scholar of my own culture uh, to get perspectives and narratives uh, that were closely related to my own experience as a black man in this country. Uh, but when you think about it, I have some white friends who will tell me they've never encountered this type of uh, information. You know, this may be an opportunity just to learn more, uh, to go and sit with people uh, not trying to do anything or perform, but building authentic relationships. We always talk about inviting persons of color to the table. Uh, what if you left the table and, go and went and sat at someone else's table? Uh, what if you took the posture of learning, right? Um, I think there are so many opportunities for um, white allies and, and uh, uh, white folks who are wanting to be authentic and standing in solidarity with uh, communities that have been oppressed or experienced injustice in healthy ways that extend beyond just the charitable acts of uh, altruism. Um, I'll tell this story and I'll, I'll close. I, I, had, um, I was talking to a friend on a podcast. He's a white guy. And we were talking about similar things. And I, I, he was like, well, what, what do I do to build relationships, right? And I was like, I was like, bro, tell me about your week. What do you do throughout the week? And he says, you know, uh, I go to the gym. He mentioned the gym. He mentioned his favorite coffee shop. He mentioned all of the things that he does in terms of uh, activity and mobility. And none, none of the places that he mentioned uh, included the folks uh, that he wanted to build relationships with. And I say, that's your problem. You haven't, uh, 
when was the last time you went to a, a side of town and had a coffee in a coffee shop that was owned by a black person? When was the last time you actually became proximate and did some things um, where it was outside of your normal routine? I say, you know, what routine itself is killing your opportunity to forge authentic and communal relationships? Um, two weeks later, he called me back. He had switched his routine up. He had started going into a, this coffee shop and he had met this older gentleman, older black guy, he's a grandfather in his seventies. And he had just started having conversations with him. Long story short, uh, this uh, man had uh, given him advice and they had become friends and he wasn't trying to do anything or get anything from him by going to that coffee shop other than just to have conversation. And to this day, uh, it's probably been five months now, uh, they've had dinner together, they've met each other's families, they, they've done all sorts of things. And it was, it was because he chose to break up his routine. And now he is leveraging that, um, um, that occurrence to teach and educate his own white community which I think is so essential. Um, and that's something that a person of color cannot do. Uh, that's, that's a moment where, um, you know, a white person has to step up and say, not only am I gonna take myself through this experience of unlearning and relearning, but I'm also gonna be vocal uh, to those persons who are around me. Our guest is Terrence Lester. The book is When We Stand Together. You can learn more about Lester's work at lovebeyondwalls.org. Lester, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Um, what a powerful invitation to live into the joy of the one who sent us here to participate in the work that God is already doing. Amen. Thank you, Andy. It was a pleasure. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including black church studies, rural ministry, and pastoral care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 